imagine. Imagine a society that values your consciousness, that supports your inner work and embraces all the tools. Imagine a place to access the psyche, to dissolve the ego and all its defenses, to summon your wisdom, creativity, and will. Imagine a center for visiting other worlds, for creating a relationship with the sacred based not on dogma, but experience. Imagine a society that transforms psychiatry, where mushrooms and plants are powerful medicines, and a mystical experience is a cure. Imagine a place for healing addictions in communion with a higher power place to vanquish depression in glorious light. Imagine a place where those who are dying can enter a deep mystical state and return with an unshakable sense of cosmic belonging. Imagine a government that harnesses the power of psychedelics to combat the cost of epidemics like depression, alcoholism, and nicotine addiction. Imagine an approach to rehabilitating criminals that dissolves, deconditions, and reconnects, reducing violence by rendering it absurd. Imagine a creative studio of consciousness, a search for empowered visions, ideas, and insights to download into the cultural milieu. Imagine accessing nature's intelligence, working with forces deeply bound in the cosmos, helping to guide our evolution. Imagine a healing technology, a safe and powerful way to reprocess formative events, making us less repressed, more integrated, more like who we want to be. Imagine a cultural rite of passage, a shift towards peace, wisdom, and spiritual maturity a lasting change sustained in ongoing practice. Imagine reclaiming your consciousness, remembering your origins in the stars, your heritage, your cosmic home. Imagine 
imagine a society that finally tells the truth about psychedelics with reasoned policies based on facts, science, and safety. A society striving to heal, to grow, to transcend. Imagine being a citizen of the first state in America to firmly plant the psychedelic flag by making psilocybin service available to the public. Imagine the psilocybin service initiative. Imagine 2020. Imagine Oregon. Imagine. guys joined us tonight and uh, stayed here late on a Wednesday evening and we're really really happy that you're here to learn about what the Oregon Psilocybin Society is doing so it seems that the word has gotten out about the healing power of psilocybin as husband and wife oh I know this uh, speaker thing is a problem as husband and wife founders of the Oregon Psilocybin Society we're envisioning a historic statewide push to legalize and regulate psilocybin services also known as psilocybin-assisted therapy. So clearly a growing number of people are getting behind this and that's largely in response to the, the latest science. Uh, the research, I'm sorry guys, the light is so, so bright. Uh, the research coming from places like UCLA, NYU, and Johns Hopkins shows that psilocybin, when administered as a part of a therapeutic sequence, combats otherwise unrelenting anxiety depression, and addictions. Additionally, the psilocybin intervention is shown to enhance openness and creativity, to promote a sense of overall well-being, and to trigger spiritual growth. And just as important, psilocybin poses no serious threat to a healthy human body. True enough, true enough. And yet psilocybin, with its minimal side effects, proven therapeutic benefits, still languishes on the DEA's Schedule One, which is, of course, a kind of pri prison cell of sorts for um, drugs that the DEA says has no therapeutic value and a high potential for abuse. Now, to be clear, there's no scientific basis for psilocybin's continued inclusion on Schedule One. The situation is especially off-putting because there's people who are suffering out there who could otherwise benefit from this clearly safe and effective service. And countless others, perhaps not suffering as much, might also benefit 
perhaps promoting an altogether healthier society. So whether we realize it or not, the long winter of psychedelic prohibition, now stretching some 46 years and counting, has taken a very real human toll. Now thankfully, things are changing. Attitudes are evolving. Progress is being made. Despite legal hindrances, psilocybin research, with fittingly flying colors, is moving through an FDA approval process. Bigger studies are coming, though it's all made difficult by federal law. Now, if the, we expect the research will progress as planned, and it's certainly reasonable to expect more positive outcomes. Now, what's not clear is whether the continued positive outcomes in this research will translate into changed policy at the federal level. For that, to for that to happen, the DEA would have to sign off on it, basically. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm not too confident that the DEA is going to do the right thing. That's basically why we're deciding to mobilize here in Oregon. That's right. So again, I'm Cherie, and this is my husband, Tom. And we live here in Portland on the west side, where we operate a private counseling practice called Innerwork, as well as a domestic violence intervention program called A Better Man where we work uh, to help rehabil rehabilitate male offenders. Now, with regard to psilocybin, it's probably fitting that a shared entheogenic vision sparked the founding of our current project. On a beautiful evening, two summers ago, surrounded by the majesty of Mother Nature, the two of us set out to experience the magic of the mushroom journey. And our setting couldn't have been better an old growth forest, hemlocks and firs at the base of Mount Rainier. And as the ancient forest went dark, the golden teachers, a noble strain of the psilocybin mushroom, came alive. In the latter stages of a very powerful trip, a dialogue took, took hold across the campfire. And somewhere in that starry soup of shared consciousness, our minds, conceived. Struck with a sense of the sacred, we suddenly understood what it means to bring a child of intention into the world. A living energy, conceived in thought, delivered in action, and lovingly raised for the psychedelic revolution for which it is designed. So I'm happy to say in the spring of 2016, my husband and I gave birth to the Oregon Psilocybin Society, which we lovingly call OPS, and which I'm happy to report it's growing stronger day by day. So what is OPS? What is the Oregon Psilocybin Society? So in short, OPS is an evolving coalition of interested individuals and networks of people who support legally regulating psilocybin services in Oregon. Now the first part of the OPS mission is to fully mobilize and educate Oregonians about the science and the safety and the benefits and the risks of supervised psilocybin use. And the second part of the mission is to bring forth the Psilocybin Service Initiative of Oregon, an evolving blueprint which, with adequate support, will emerge as a ballot initiative during Oregon's general election cycle in 2020. Now, if passed, the measure would uh, provide regulated access to psilocybin services in Oregon uh, for those who qualify. 
So, of course, Oregon is one of 22 ballot initiative states in the country, as you probably know, which means that we can sketch a law and forward it to the people for a vote. So we've gone ahead and developed the language of the psilocybin service initiative uh, with plenty of time to tweak it as we move forward. And after we submit the proposal to the Secretary of State next summer, we need to collect 88,000 petition signatures. And to get, that's to get onto the general election ballot in 2020. We've got a great start on things. But obviously the hard work is still ahead. Laying the groundwork for a campaign and a signature drive is no small thing. We've got to raise awareness. We've got to mitigate fears out there. We've got to raise funds. We've got to collect those tons and tons of signatures, get on the ballot, and win. It's going to take time. It's going to take resources. But most importantly, I think it's going to take a really well-coordinated collective push. Exactly. So for the next half hour or so, we're going to talk with you about the initiative and the kind of services it supports, covering in broad strokes a variety of factors which we think support the mission. So let's first look at the uh, psilocybin service modality. As far as Western medicine goes, it's an entirely unprecedented model. Psilocybin, after all, creates change through the psychedelic experience it provides, such that a single experience can change a person's disposition moving forward. Pretty great, right? It's a model in which a potentially life-altering psycho-spiritual journey is situated within a sequence of sessions, a progression which includes, at minimum, preparation in the days leading up to the session, then the actual psilocybin psychedelic journey itself, followed by an integration in the, in the days that come up afterwards. It's hard to overstate how different this model is as compared to a typical pharma type model. The main difference is the mechanism of action. Again, psilocybin works because of the astonishing experience it opens up, not because of any lasting pharmacological interaction. It's the experience that makes a deep, deep uh, impression upon the person a lasting impression. And it's the way that you prepare for it beforehand and the way that you integrate it afterward that causes those creative breakthroughs that brings about the spiritual connections and, and all the rest of it. The benefits don't happen because a drug remains in your, blood your bloodstream tweaking your brain day after day. As a matter of fact, uh, for some, a psilocybin intervention might eliminate the need to daily dose psych meds. So you can see why this is a potential game changer for psychiatry. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, from a therapeutic and facilitation kind of point of view, uh, a goal of the initiative is to ensure that uh, basically a purely experiential humanistic orientation. And what I mean by that is psychedelic facilitation should only attempt to activate a client's inner wisdom and inner resources. It's not, we're not trying to pressure or persuade from the outside, obviously, and not even, or not even interpreting people's experiences from the outside. It's a non-directive approach, along with an unconditional positive regard for the client, as well as a deep respect for the psychologically vulnerable state 
that psilocybin produces. These are the essential elements of this kind of work. Now, the goal is to facilitate trust and safety so that clients can interact with the psilocybin experience in their own way. Now, as of now, this kind of model sees daylight only in, a, in, in university research settings across the country. Scientists are studying the psychedelic experience and refining norms around how best to facilitate psychedelic healing and growth. Now, facilitation is provided by well-trained individuals, which will be a requirement here in Oregon, Oregon as well, should we get it passed. Uh, that being said, I want to make the point that we, don't, we want to open up certification avenues to anyone with the heart and the disposition to do this kind of work. We think that's very important not just MDs or PhDs. Exactly, and you know, that might even include some of you in this room, and we, we hope it does. So to sum this up, the psilocybin service model offers a sequence of sessions that surrounds and includes a psilocybin-induced psychedelic experience. And again, it's the experience, not, the sh not just the drug interaction, which sparks change in people. Proper facilitation is key and involves being highly supportive, but as Tom said, not intrusive. Right, right. So how exactly does the psilocybin sequence make such a lasting impact on people? Dr. Roland Griffiths, pictured here, and his research team at Johns Hopkins University has advanced our, study, our, our understanding in this regard for over a decade or so. Now, Griffiths' team has repeatedly demonstrated that psilocybin, especially at high doses, frequently induces life-changing, what he calls mystical-type experiences, which appear identical in form, actually, to those described by mystics and spiritual teachers throughout the ages and from around the world, from different traditions around the world. Now, <clears throat> this means that the full-blown mystical experience, once considered rare, unpredictable, difficult to achieve, is now safely and reliably reproduced through psilocybin services. Furthermore, it's now clear that the mystical experiences have a lot to do with the therapeutic gains people are making. Psilocybin studies across the board show that the most intense mystical type experiences are correlated with positive change. So another angle on this comes from Dr. David Nutt and Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris. Robin is pictured here. They're at the Imperial College in London. Now, they've been giving healthy volunteers doses of psilocybin and then using a variety of scanning tools to see what's going on in their brains. Now, a couple of findings jump out, which I think, when taken together, shed light on how psilocybin produces mystical experiences and creates lasting change. Now, first finding is that psilocybin causes significantly increased activity in the deeper regions of the brain, as illustrated here. You can see that the, the dramatic increase in connectivity under the influence of psilocybin as compared to placebo. Now this kind of revved up deep brain activity results not only in intensified emotions and sensations, but due to a kind of novel crosstalk between the brain regions, the brain structures. This is what creates the kind of weirdly altered perceptions that are, of course, the hallmark of the psychedelic experience. Exactly, so uh, that's the first finding. A second finding is perhaps more surprising because it involves a reduction of brain activity. 
This is seen mostly in the prefrontal cortex within a diffuse system of related structures known as the default mode network, or the DMN. The DMN is, is uh, involved in top-down processing, acting as a kind of manager or an orchestra conductor of your brain. It's been associated with states of self-reflection and even the general day-to-day -day sense of self, which makes it really intriguing. Interestingly, studies have shown that the default mode network is actually overactive and hyper-connected in individuals who suffer from depression, anxiety, addictions, and other mental health issues. It seems that an overactive default mode network reflects a mind which is stuck in tight patterns of thinking and, and feeling, a kind of ruminations, rigidity, and negative cycles which are associated with many mental health issues. So, by temporarily deactivating the default mode network, psilocybin essentially has the opposite effect. It tears users away from those stuck states of mind, including depressive, anxious, and addictive patterns. At the very same time, a profound state of consciousness arises. Fueled, like Tom said, by increased activity and novel connection in the brain's deeper structures. So when the balance is just right, a kind of transcendent, mystical experience breaks through. A numinous flash of consciousness, which brings with it an overwhelming sense of oneness, of awe, of sacredness, of reverence, of love, and a kind of undeniable truth. Suddenly the mind, or the deep psyche, enjoys a rather astonishing freedom and expansion. And with proper integration afterwards, these experiences are changing people in lasting ways. Incredible. So with all that said, let's look at some of the clinical outcomes described in the research. And in so doing, I don't want to overlook the most fundamental finding, really. Namely, that psilocybin and the classical psychedelics especially when carefully administered in supportive settings, are essentially safe. This is clear in all the separate studies. And even more support comes from Norway, thanks to an organization called Emma Sophia, who focus on worldwide psychedelic policy reform. Now, they did an extensive uh, survey study and found that among 22,000 lifetime psychedelic users, there was, contrary to old myths and beliefs, no increase in mental health issues or suicidality as compared to those who never use psychedelics. In fact, the opposite is true. In the survey, lifetime use of psychedelics was associated with increased well-being and decreased suicidality. And in addition to that, a review prepared by the Dutch Ministry of Health shows that psilocybin mushrooms have no addictive properties. Many of you probably knew that. You know, there's, there's no associated dependency issues or, or withdrawal issues with psilocybin. So, for those who, who pass a basic medical and mental health screening, 
really the only consistent risk is the possibility of, a height, of heightened anxiety during the journey. And of course, this is a very time-limited issue. More severe or lasting adverse effects are extremely rare and are likely limited to a subset of individuals who are predisposed to these kind of pathologic reactions, such as psychosis. So this is why careful screening, by the way, is very important. So again, with screening, these services are quite safe, and the many myths that led to the stigma around psilocybin have been largely debunked by proper science. Mm -hmm. And while proof of safety is obviously fundamental, the real excitement around this research is in the apparent healing benefits, right? Studies at top-notch universities are yielding incredible results in a variety of areas. Most recently, a landmark follow-up at Johns Hopkins by Roland Griffith's team further clarified the effectiveness of structured psilocybin use in the treatment of depression and anxiety secondary to cancer diagnoses. Now here the psilocybin is being used to treat the psychological distress that often comes with a cancer diagnosis. Now uh, here, I'll, I guess I'll just quote directly from the uh, conclusion section of the study as it was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology late last year. Quote, when administered under psychologically supportive double-blind conditions, a single dose of psilocybin produced substantial and enduring decreases in depressed mood and anxiety, along with increases in quality of life, and, and specifically a decrease in death anxiety in patients with life-threatening cancer diagnoses. Mm. Now, when you, when you dig into this, it's, it's truly amazing. It's, it's touching, really. In short, people's entire sense of who they are is being altered in a positive way. These cancer patients, some, of course, teetering on the edge of death, some living with the stress of the diagnosis, take psilocybin in a supportive environment and find themselves thrust into a dazzling mystical experience that instills a greater sense of cosmic belonging. Now, the experience is profoundly meaningful and it's helping this, these subjects to transcend the fear of death and to live out their lives more fully. Wow, right? That in itself would be enough to support legalization, agreed? But there's a lot more. Another evolving body of research involves psilocybin services as a treatment for addictions. <clears throat> There's a lot of action here, and rightfully so. Clinical trials are currently planned in British Columbia, and they're set to explore the efficacy of psilocybin in treating opioid addictions. So we'll eagerly await for those results. But there's already evidence that psilocybin might be a game changer. Smaller studies were completed at NYU and the University of New Mexico, in which patients suffering from alcoholism showed significantly more improvement when receiving psilocybin-assisted therapy as compared to psychotherapy alone, to talk therapy. And again, these studies are showing that it's the intensity of the mystical experience correlating highly with the magnitude of the change in the individual. A case can be made that the psilocybin-induced mystical experience connects the alcoholic to what AA commonly calls a higher power, thus 
bringing about the lasting change. And of course, it's good, and we should mention that Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, was a very strong proponent of the psychedelic intervention to kickstart the recovery process. Right, and, and kind of along those same lines, back at Johns Hopkins University, studies have shown that smokers can break the nicotine addiction with psilocybin therapy. Now, subjects in these studies basically reported a deep integration concerning the lifetime impact of their smoking. Through psilocybin, they saw themselves in a more profound light and sensed their own value more clearly and more authentically. As a result, they're no longer willing to compromise themselves with a nicotine habit. 80% of heavy smokers treated with psilocybin were still cigarette-free six months after treatment. Now think about that. The best nicotine treatments available on the market today have success rates of around 20%. So while these primary kind of headline-grabbing um, outcomes are, are, are pretty amazing, somewhat buried in the, in the studies is a finding which I think transcends clinical application as it pertains more to growth than human potential more generally. We think it might be the most important finding of all, actually. And it's that psilocybin facilitates lasting personality change. Basically, the, the amazing part of this personality change stuff is that personality doesn't change. You know, it's never as a single intervention, whether pharmacologic or psychotherapeutic in nature, yielded a change in personality with this kind of frequency, right? Right. So what is openness? Let's take a look. Increased openness correlates highly with creativity and divergent thinking. People who score high in openness are likely to seek new experiences, accept others, engage intellectually, become absorbed in creative tasks, and make novel associations between remotely connected ideas. Now, this is an amazing finding, uh, with implications, I think, beyond the clinical realm, like I said. So this impact on openness makes us think about the far-reaching implications, doesn't it? I hope it does, because it should. Indeed, beyond the clinical realm, the psilocybin experience lock unlocks human potential in a variety of ways. <clears throat> Take creativity, for example. Now, it's no secret that visionary artists embrace psychedelics as a creative tool. And it seems a percentage, a percentage of innovators across the board, from product designers and engineers to mathematicians and scientists, have been similarly sparked. Willis Harmon and James Fadiman assessed the impact of the psychedelic experience on creativity back in the 60s. They showed that some subjects demonstrated enhanced creative abilities when tested during and after a psychedelic experience as compared to before. Harmon and Fadiman associated these improvements in creativity with a variety of psychedelic effects, including things like reduced inhibition and anxiety, increased ability to see problems in a wider context, increased fluency and flexibility of ideas, improved visual imagery, improved ability to connect disparate ideas, and improved ability to visualize a completed solution.
Let's just sit with that for a moment. Consider these insights in conjunction with why we're here tonight, which is to consider a future for psilocybin service in Oregon. A future in which these services are made accessible to everyone. Legalizing psychedelics, legalizing psychedelic services would undoubtedly accelerate and further legitimize psychedelic creativity. And we think this could be consequential to our progress as human beings, if not to our very survival, especially as we as a people are facing outsized planetary problems. This is what the doctor ordered, an enhanced, ego-dissolving, problem-solving, wide-angle view. And the most wide-angle problem of all, of course, is our broken relationship with nature, which has resulted in the cascading consequences of climate change. Now, for the individual, the psilocybin experience seems to mend this relationship. In dramatic fashion, psilocybin reopens our eyes to the natural world. Just eat some magic mushrooms while camping, and you'll probably find yourself in deep communion with your surroundings. The trees come alive with intent. Insects appear impossibly engineered. A leaf radiates algorithmic patterns, as does the palm of your hand. You begin to realize that you're enveloped in a boundless system of intelligence. When we commune with nature, we commune with the depths of our being. After all, we're all derived of nature. We are, each one of us, a unique articulation of the cosmos, inseparable from the stars. This is what the mushroom teaches. And once deeply felt, it's not easily forgotten. And I'd imagine that those who commune deeply with nature are less likely to degrade it, or themselves, so carelessly. If this kind of communion was integrated on a cultural level, we might again evolve intelligently as a people. Psilocybin could play a role. Simply put, psychedelics like psilocybin help us realign with nature's intelligence, which is now an imperative. Yes, it is. And um, we can also ponder the relationship between consciousness and the natural world. Psilocybin puts these questions front and central. How are we to evaluate the mystical payload of a psilocybin journey? Does the trip really show us something about the nature of reality? Or does it function more like a dream laden with subjective meaning, but otherwise unreal? What's the relationship? Though our laws say otherwise, we should be free to plumb the mystery and devise our own hypothesis. It's our own consciousness. And if exploring it isn't a human right, frankly, we don't know what is. In our opinion, the truly psychedelic questions shouldn't be glossed over. They're at the heart of the experience. And if they upend your current way of thinking, 
there's probably good reason. So, at the risk of jeopardizing an acceptable scholarly focus, let's just ask the question that's on everybody's mind. What about the aliens? <laughs> are they real? <laughs> or are they just figments of a drug-induced imagination? <laughs> Great question. You see, countless psychonauts, and I'll include myself in that category, come back from high-dose psilocybin and DMT trips with tales of adjacent realities inhabited by alien beings. Now, these kind of reports have even given rise to an odd and evolving taxonomy of entities, astonishing little beings who seem terribly interested in sharing with us their indescribable technologies. <laughs> Hundreds of such reports, many from first-time users who were, weren't even forewarned of what might await, seem to illustrate how these phenomena recur. Just what kind of space is this improbable psychedelic realm? Does the brain manufacture this space or receive it? Is it all locked up in our skulls or is consciousness free and boundless like a field? Is consciousness just an earthly anomaly or is it an integral part of the universe? Again, the psilocybin experience teases our curiosity. Now granted, those inclined to explain away the psychedelic experience can do so, following a reductionist line of thought. A reductionist thinker would simply say that if you introduce a disruptive chemical into the brain, the brain becomes disordered. Assuming, as the reductionist would, that, a, that consciousness indeed arises from brain activity, then it would, of course, follow that tampering with the brain will result in disorganized states of consciousness, hence the psychedelic trip. But those who take the psychedelic plunge may come up with a different view. To many explorers, the mystical splendor of the psychedelic journey seems an unlikely consequence of scrambled brain activity. Pristine visions like these are hard to marginalize. They seem to come from somewhere else, somewhere beyond the brain. As such, visitors of the psychedelic realms sometimes liken the activity of the brain to that of a receiver or a tuning device, right? While the default channel is hardwired in, psychedelics seem to spin the dial. The psychedelic voyager, from this point of view, essentially surfs through a kind of mind at large, tuning in unthinkable dimensions through a crossfire of informational frequencies. In short, this is the kind of probing that the psychedelic experience seems to support. Exactly. While the questions we've raised here about consciousness and reality remain largely unanswered, the main point is that they arise directly from the experience itself. What exactly is the deep psychedelic space? Does our usual way of encoding reality keep us tuned to one world while cutting away alternate frequencies? Does mind surround us like a field, a kind of overmind which we've barely begun to access? Scientific convention dismisses these kind of ideas 
as the old guard continues to reduce consciousness to a strange and rather unnecessary side effect of brain activity. But there remains a perennial view, a sense that consciousness underwrites the brain and pervades the universe at large. And perhaps psychedelics help to open that door. So as we explore the psychedelic experience and all that it entails, including these far-reaching implications, it's hard not to consider the bigger questions. What about the fate of all humankind? Could psychedelics play a role in our evolution? Can entheogenic experience save ourselves from ourselves? Can the mushroom guide us to a better future? Hmm. I'm tempted to turn these questions kind of inside out, to look in on ourselves through the other side of the lens. If we do manage to survive and evolve as a species, what will the historians of a distant future make of us? What will the scholars of a truly advanced society, perhaps a thousand years into the future, think about our civilization? What would they see? My bet is that they wouldn't focus much on our politics or our technologies. I think they'd focus on our consciousness, specifically the way we value or devalue our consciousness. I think they'd be struck by how outwardly focused we are, how taken we are by the outer world, and by how relatively little we value the inner dimensions, the inner sanctum of consciousness. And perhaps nothing would appear as vexing to these future scholars as criminalizing safe and effective means to enhance and explore consciousness, namely the psychedelics. It seems to me that a truly advanced society would deeply value consciousness and by extension the tools to explore it. I think the advanced society would understand consciousness probably as many in the room do as a conduit to good health, to the self, into the very nature of our being, into the cosmos. By valuing consciousness, a truly advanced society, I imagine, would be on a path of healing and a journey toward wholeness. So it's a modern tragedy, I think, that we've lost touch with these inner dimensions, these infinities within us all. Like Terence McKenna once said, our world is in crisis due to the absence of consciousness. Certainly America in custom and culture doesn't really value the inner sanctum. The forces of capitalism, they're literally geared to make us forget our inner dimensions, our inner resources, ourselves, our deeply felt self-acceptance. We're bombarded with messages that we're not enough just as we are. And so we're lost in a social neurosis of vanity, consumerism, image over substance, attention at all costs, and all the rest of it. And then on the shadow side of all this false striving, this um, unfounded arrogance, We've got the failure narratives, the depression, the alienation, the addictions. So it's long unfolding, this crisis of consciousness. And now we're in a tailspin. 
And well, it seems dire, and it is. Perhaps it's just what we need. Tonight, Tom and I come to you with a plan of action, one thread of a transformational movement taking shape across the country and the world. And with it, we offer a message of hope. And it's not really a message about incremental change. It's more about reclaiming our consciousness. It's about social catharsis. It's about healing our culture. Isn't that the promise of the psilocybin experience? Isn't that what this new modality could offer our state, our country, our world? The psilocybin experience in so many amazing ways helps us to reclaim ourselves, our wholeness, our truth. It reconnects us to the mystical experience, which seems to me an antidote for so many social ills. In the glowing aftermath of a well-integrated psilocybin experience, one can't help but value consciousness or the possibilities of inner work. We can't help but experience empathy or appreciate all of nature's miraculous beings or value the earth or open up in utter astonishment to the infinities. And yes, we do think the culture is ready for something like this. Not in recent history has there been such connectivity on the ground. Not in recent memory has there been such an urgency to define, to declare, and to defend the value of consciousness and to infuse consciousness into law. And with the hijacking of our federal government, the power to reevaluate falls to the states. Thankfully, we find here in Oregon not only a progressive populace, but an instrument of direct democracy. It's called the Ballot Initiative. My friends, let's use it. As Washington, D.C. unravels, we Oregonians should ready ourselves to plant a new psychedelic flag. So, as we contemplate the construction of a more conscious society, let's realize that psilocybin services, the careful crafting and implementation of a humanistic, community-based service framework is not a periphery matter. Legally regulated psilocybin services would powerfully signify a new valuation of consciousness in America. As such, Tom and I would like to introduce to you tonight our campaign to legalize psilocybin services in the state of Oregon. Okay, so we've come full circle. Again, the Oregon Psilocybin Society, OPS, is to which you're now all invited, by the way is proposing a framework for legalizing and regulating psilocybin services here in Oregon. 
Now, we hope to submit a polished proposal along with 88,000 petition signatures to the Secretary of State for inclusion on the 2020 ballot. Now, we need to build momentum. The language of the initiative is essentially written. We're just waiting on a full draft from our lawyers at the Legislative Council in Salem. We can submit the proposal next year, which means that we can begin gathering signatures as early as next summer, right? Right. So in the, in the months ahead, we've got to really raise awareness and educate the public. And fundraising is a key to momentum, of course. Any funds we raise help us to get out there and spread the word in a variety of ways here in Portland and across the state. And we certainly want to do more events like this. We want to do some fundraising dinners uh, this fall. And in, we want to do a crowdfund campaign as well, which will aim to kickstart some momentum for the uh, signature push ahead. And by the way, successful crowdfund campaigns start strong. So please, if you think this work has importance, don't stay on the sidelines. Donate if you can. Also, sign up for updates and look for calls to action on our website, opsbuzz.com, as well as our Facebook page. And get your friends involved. Get your friends to sign up as well. And let us know if you're willing to volunteer, even if it's just an hour or two a week. Right now, we're busy organizing and strategizing, but, um, so we might not have the assignment right away, but we will soon. And this, once this signature push gets going, we're going to definitely need everybody. Absolutely right. So tonight, we're putting out the call. Nurses, doctors, naturopaths, therapists, visionary artists, policy reformers, mycologists, float tank enthusiasts, meetup group leaders, whoever you are, please invite us into your networks and together we'll build a diverse and powerful coalition in support of psychedelic policy reform here in Oregon. And if you're not a part of a network, we need you too. If you have skills and you're willing to contribute or collaborate, we need things like creative content, web development, videography, campaign and fundraising expertise, and a lot more. And finally, and this applies to all of us, we're going to need those canvassers to get those 88,000 signatures. So starting next year, we'll need people who can convey the message and collect the signatures. So let us know who you are, and we'll let you know when it's time to mobilize, because we are going to need an army. We really are. So we hope you're on board, and we invite you to reach out to us anytime. Together, we can make history. And more importantly, we can change consciousness. Thank you all for attending tonight. Thank you so much.